someone you should know. A program about people you know, and even more that you don't. Hosted by Stuart Sachs, veteran, husband, father, and grandfather. Now, here's your host, Stuart Sachs. Well, welcome back to another edition of Someone You Should Know. Awfully glad you decided to spend a little bit of time with us, whether you're watching it live on Wednesday morning or whether you're just catching up on one of 20 different platforms to, to see the show. I welcome you. We're going to have a good time today. And we are brought to you today in part by our good friend Irving Chung, who is a franchise specialist. What is franchising, you say? Hey, it means that you don't have to give up your day job if you've always wanted to maybe have a part-time franchise. You need to call Irving. He can tell you all about what even part-time franchises are available for a very low outlay of some cash. Uh, honestly, there's some really interesting ones like painting. You can do a, a painting franchise or a bookkeeping or, or you know, one of a, a lot of... Even the one that fascinates me, you got to ask him about it, is waterless car washes. Hmm. Call Irving Chung. You'll get a free consultation. You can find out what about franchising and what it's all about and see if it's right for you. Well, there's one thing that is right for everybody, and that is food. And you know, I love talking about food, but there is somebody that actually not only talks about food, but actually knows a lot about food. And he's the guest today, David Page. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And, and by the way, it's it's great to be introduced by The Who. By what? The Who, your music. Oh, The Who, yeah, yeah. Who are you? Who, who? Yeah, it's, it's like from my day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get a comment from somebody that's a little bit younger, and they say... What music was that at the beginning? What band is that? Was they any oh, yeah. good? What was that? Yeah. yeah. That's, I, I have a, right, right. I have a t-shirt that says, I may be old, but I got to see the really cool bands. So, Perfect. Uh, uh, yeah. Perfect. We, we could reminisce about that too. Absolutely. And, and, and a lot when, 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 when you and I used to go and see some of those old bands and everything, the food that was offered at some of those venues was quite a bit different than what it is today. Yeah, well, it's interesting because my next book is going to be, the working title is Eating While Standing, and it's about the food you get at non-white tablecloth, non-sit-down joints, and uh, it's going to include stadium and uh, venue food and, and state fairs and things like that. But yeah, it's especially at sports venues now, it's completely different than it used to be. Well, and, and I think that a lot of people are choosing to make their own goods and everything because the price of food at a stadium has gotten just almost out, out of range. Yeah, but don't they, I don't know, do, do they like take it away if you try to sneak it in? I remember years ago covering the Kentucky Derby for NBC News. I recall getting this fantastic shot uh, as people were coming in through the turnstiles of the security guys reaching down the front of some guy's jeans and coming up with a flask. <laughs> <laughs> they, you couldn't bring your own, not with what they were charging for mint juleps. Right, right. Yeah. I, I have cousins who were, were 
deadheads. They they followed oh, the dead all over. And what they used to do is they used to get there a few hours early and tailgate have tailgate parties. They used to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and they'd sell peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for dollars. And it was a great deal because it only cost about fifty cents to make one, uh, and they made money. But if you were to order a sandwich inside the venue, it was you seven, know, eight, nine dollars. That so I don't know what the the deals are between. And now you know at big venues, it's all like a handful of companies. But right, exactly. When people complain, for example, about the price of food at movie theaters, given the amount of money the theaters have to pay to to get the films, the only thing they can make money on is the food. I remember when I, I was a senior investigative producer at 2020 for a while, and the executive producer of the show kept hocking me, he said, to use a Yiddish word, to do a piece on how unfair the price of popcorn is in a movie theater. And I, I kept coming back to him saying, look, I've looked into it seven ways from Sunday, but it ain't unfair if they're going to pay their rent. It's yeah. It's it's why dinner is so expensive in a New York restaurant. It's real estate. Yeah, and 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 you know, so what they do is it's kind of that uh, the the hook. Uh, you can either get a drink for nine dollars uh, and popcorn for nine dollars, or you can get a combination for twelve. Hey, so, what could be better? Well, though I gotta tell you, and I haven't been to one like this certainly since the pandemic. But I became, when we were living in Minnesota, I became a fan of, we had one of those theaters with like the seats were like first class sleeper seats on an airplane right. and the waiters would bring you drinks during the movie, which probably wasn't good for the people behind you. But that was a nice experience because, you know, it watching, everyone watches movies at home now, but it's a completely different experience. Uh, you know, the filmmaker's gnashing his teeth because you can't get the kind of audio at home that you get in a theater, wh which is why so many people complain that you can't hear dialogue on your home TV. No, because it was made for a theater. Um, but anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, you know, you know just about everything there is to know about food. And no, I do not. No, I'm. I'm not a chef. I'm not a historian. I am a damn well informed journalist. But you know what's right for a lot your taste of questions. I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I'm good with food. So, so, where was the fascination for you? How did you? How did you get into it? Well, uh, to some extent, the fascination was I didn't want to starve to death. And if you're talking, <laughs> if you're talking, well, well, I'm being kind of legit. If you're talking about the the food show that kind of made me famous, obviously that's diners, drive-ins, and dives. Um, and I got into that because I had left network news. I had done a short stint with a home shopping channel and hated it thought I wanted to be, you know, an executive of a publicly traded corporation and and then wanted to so uh I opened my own production company and I wasn't selling anything. 
And, and finally, I'm on the phone with uh, an executive from the Food Network who had been politely taking my calls and saying no, no, no to everything I pitched. Finally, she said to me one day, have you got anything about diners? And I said to her, oh, yeah, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And I told her all about it. And to my astonishment, she said, that sounds good. This was late on a Thursday, like the sun was going down. And she said, get me a, a one sheet, a write up for a one hour special by Monday. We have a development meeting on Tuesday. I got off the phone. I was thrilled that she was interested, but I had a problem, which was no, I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I had just pulled the name out of thin air, or if you want to be scatological, a particular body part, and, and kind of made up the description of what it was, which gave me, you know, Friday and the weekend to come up with something. So I started calling all over the country and came up with a half a dozen places to put in a special, uh, sent them the one sheet. Uh, on Monday. And uh, shortly after their Tuesday meeting, they picked up a one-hour special, which later became a series. Now, my interest in food had begun earlier um, to a great extent when I moved overseas for NBC News. Uh, I, they moved me from the Chicago Bureau to London. And then from London, I moved to Frankfurt. And from Frankfurt, I moved to Budapest to um, get ready for the obviously on the horizon communist revolutions. Um, but when I got to Europe, I had never expected, uh, I was relatively xenophobic as most Americans are about the rest of the world. Never occurred to me that I would go overseas and, and cover stuff. Uh, and I suddenly found myself going from country I knew nothing about to country I knew nothing about and having to backfill my info pretty quickly. And I quickly found out that food is a gateway to a culture, that exploring the foods of a country or region, because food is more regional than national, but, but getting into those foods with the people from those countries or regions was a real eye-opener about where you were. I mean, there's a reason in Paris that you don't eat at your desk. You go out and have a good lunch for an hour because that reflects the entire Parisian view of life and what work-life balance should be. Uh, a few hundred miles away in Strasbourg, there's a reason, Strasbourg being in France, there's a reason that the signature dish there is, is German. It's something called chacrut with hunks of pork and sausage on top of a mound of sauerkraut. Uh, a, it's great. B, it in no way feels French because it is the gateway to understanding for the past few centuries. That part of land has gone back and forth between France and Germany repeatedly. Right. You know, you, you go to um, you go to Greece and have a meza, you know, that, that shared table of small plates. It's reflective of Greek culture, which so prizes social engagement that the philosopher Epicurus, and yes, there was one, and yes, Epicurean comes from him. He was quoted as saying that it's essential if you're planning a meal 
to first choose who you're going to eat and drink with before you choose what to eat and drink, because in his words, to eat alone is to live the life of a lion or a wolf. So there's so much you can pick up from, from the foods of different places. When I came back to the States, I, I, I brought all of that interest with me. Yeah, and what, uh, what, what you did. Yes, Stuart. I, I lost you there you for know, a I, minute. I'm, I'm curious. What, what, yeah, no, I, I was, was going to say what you what you brought up uh, about determining who you were going to eat with uh, before you decide what you were going to eat. For instance, it would be the difference between what you might eat with friends and what you might meet with a business associate. Uh, is that yeah. true in America as well as in other countries? Sure. Sure. I mean, look, there's the old joke about the expense account lunch, but yeah. Right, um, right. You know, uh, yeah, it, who you're going to eat with is a huge determinant. Um, I mean, the typical, like from Seinfeld, the decision is you want to go get something to eat? Sure. What do you want? It being New York, then your options are Chinese, Thai, Bolivian, whatever. But yes, um, let, let's go share a meal. That it, it's interesting. All right, so, uh, so I gotta, I gotta start throwing some some questions at you. Uh, with with your broad horizon of of foods that you have have enjoyed, are there particular palates, particular countries, particular foods? that are your go-to favorites? Yes, although what, I, what I'm going to tell you is stuff that, to a great extent, has not become part of American cuisine. Okay, My book, Food Americana, we can get to that in a minute, defines American cuisine as a variety of foodways that we imported from other countries or cultures and then modified our way. Um, yep. Left to my own devices... I would prefer the uh, food as served today in Spain uh, and Italy. Um, I prefer Mediterranean dishes uh, overall. I'm particular fond, particularly fond of Spain. Um, and not a lot of true Spanish cuisine has made it into American cuisine. You know, and it's wonderfully simple stuff like... Uh, a dish called pane tomate, which is simply grilled bread that has been slathered with olive oil and then rubbed with half a tomato. Uh, now, it's a good tomato grown in a wonderful place. It's the best olive oil you'll find anywhere, and it's fresh baked bread. It'll knock your socks off. Or the, 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 the variety of seafoods you can get in Spain or anywhere on the Med uh, will just blow your mind. When my wife and I were in Spain a couple of years ago, I remember at the Central Market, I believe in Valencia, tasting barnacles for the first time. You think of barnacles as this invasive shellfish that has to be removed from the hull of ships. But exactly. unknown to me, it's, it is a shellfish and you can eat it. And it reminded me of lobster. Now, it's a small thing with a, a shell you have to break through. 
And the tiny bit of meat that's in there is sweet and wonderful, just like lobster. So um, it's a great, it, it's a great series of cuisines. We, we went to cooking school for half a day in, in, in Valencia and uh, learned to make uh, what the Spaniards call a tortilla, which is not uh, a Mexican tortilla. It's basically an omelet that includes potatoes um, that you kind of cook in a pan and then turn over to, to download. Uh, it's extraordinary. It's, I mean, the food, the food in Spain will just put you on your butt. <laughs> it's great. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that almost anything that is cooked fresh is mm -hmm. going, you know, uh, from scratch is going to outweigh anything that is mass produced. Oh, of course, of course, of course. I mean, uh, you've heard of Lenders Bagels. They sure basically yeah. the Lender Brothers brought the bagel to America outside of New York and other Jewish enclaves. And I I spoke to Marvin, one of the three brothers, you know, because they're they're accused of changing the bagel by mass producing and freezing it uh, into something softer, sweeter, full of um, preservatives. Marvin proudly doesn't deny it. He says, look, uh, first of all, whenever you mass produce something, you're going to change it. And secondly, we had to market this to the Midwest. I couldn't have sold a, a traditional New York bagel out there. Um, we sold what would sell. And it's, you know, it became the template for the average American bagel, even though there's now a an artisanal bagel resurgence underway, but that's a perfect example of, of something that, that had to be changed by technology and mass production. But, but broader than that, I mean, you're opening the door to a whole pet peeve of mine, which is for God's sake, people cook some real food. You know, I see these commercials for cooking kits where they've cut up the pieces of chicken and they've pre-measured the salt and pepper the amount of time it takes to read those instructions and open that package i can take a chicken i can put it in a pan i can rub it with salt pepper and garlic pour in a little chicken stock from one of those boxes you buy you know the pourable boxes put it in the oven at 500 and come That's back right. in minutes and i got dinner it's not that hard to cook real food from scratch and anytime you're you're trying to short circuit that. Take a look at the ingredients because somewhere in there is going to be a bunch of preservatives and things. Not not only that you don't need, but that I posit in most cases influence the flavor negatively. And, and you're absolutely right because if you look at a lot of those quick meal things, there's one ingredient in there that is usually very much overdone, and that's salt. It's because the salt is what brings out some of the flavor of the other stuff that's in there. But the sodium content can be off the charts in order yeah, to make that supposedly taste good. It's, it's fascinating, though, because the difference, when you ask a professional chef what the difference is between his or her cooking, <clears throat> pardon me, and... Um, and the way you make food at home, the flavor difference, they will tell you that professional chefs use a lot more salt than you have the guts to use at home. 
Now, I, I don't want to get it into the preservative level, but salt is not necessarily an enemy. It depends how you deploy it. Right. And also there's a difference between sea salt uh, and, uh, and rock salt and uh, table salt. Uh, just like there's, you know, I, I remember at one time, and I didn't even knew it existed, but there were uh, stores that just sell oils, yeah. olive oils and canola oils. And everything. I mean, shelves and, and shelves of different kinds of oil. And what you were talking about, the, the difference between the Italian oils and the Spanish oils uh, and the Greek oils, uh, it, a lot of people will say that the that the flavor of the, the cooking is sometimes in the oil that it's prepared in. And it's not just by country. If you really get into it, you can buy olive oils from specific vendors who treat them uh, kind of like wine. They they will tell you this is peppery and good for such and such. This tastes this way and will enhance this. This one has a very subtle flavor, probably better to cook with or use on a salad. So no, there there's a range of olive oils. Now one of the problems is uh, I doubt the purity of much of the olive oils sold in supermarkets from my years. In the investigative journalism business, uh, we uh, we worked on at least one story, and others have done it, about the fact that a large percentage of what is passed off as olive oil is actually a counterfeit mixture. If there's any olive oil in it, it's probably mixed with canola or peanut or something else. Your now, corn oil or so, yeah, yeah. The way to get around that, obviously, is is to buy nothing but um source transparent olive oils generally from a much more expensive vendor and i i do that sometimes but let's be honest i i also next to my stove is a large container of olive oil that i bought from my supermarket with my fingers crossed Yeah, it and uh, it, all it has to on the on the uh, bottle is to say contains, uh, you know, uh, uh, Greek olive oil or something. Just like saying this, the a movie is based on a true story. Uh, that the hook is to try and get you to think that you're getting natural ingredients, where it's a partial natural ingredient mixed in with everything else. Well, part of the other the other trick is bottled in Spain. They don't tell you yes. where the olives were grown. And like a cheap wine, they may be a mixture of olives from a bunch of places that happened to be bottled in Spain. It doesn't make it Spanish olive oil. No. Boy, are we off on a tangent. Well, I mean, but, you know, it's all relative to our fascination with food. I know that that I have often said to people when they're sitting in a restaurant and they're looking at their watches and saying, where is our meal? You know, why is it taking so long? They're cooking the damn thing. Yes. And, and maybe they're even cooking it from scratch. You know, you stop and think about that. Because when you order something, like you order a rack of ribs and they come out in about a minute and a half, you know darn well that that wasn't really prepared 
be to your liking. It's been sitting in no. the. You know, and the also, let's face it: much of the skill of professional cooking is knowing all the time-saving tricks, such as um, parboiling pasta. Every Italian restaurant worth a damn uh, parboils their pasta so that when you order it, they just have to finish it. They don't have time to put up a pot of water and and fresh boil your pasta. Right. It's like the concept of mise en place, where all of the ingredients for a dish are prepped in the morning and put out to be drawn from. Nobody's chopping onions or tomatoes on the line, but it's a question of knowing what you can do and what you can't do. Um, that that is key to being a chef or a cook. Um, I, I'm a cook. I'm a good one. Amateur, good home cook. I have none of the skills that it takes to be a chef. I can't be over here talking to someone and reach behind me and flip something without looking just because my gut told me I should. That's what it takes to be a chef. Yeah. And, and uh, my wife and I spent 10 years in the Florida Keys. Uh, mm. And you talk talk about fresh fish. I mean, you could go out on a boat and catch a snapper and bring it in to the restaurant and have the most incredible meal uh, with fresh fish. You Now I live in Texas. I go into a restaurant that has, has you know, red snapper or something on the menu and you you order it, and like I said earlier, it comes out to the table within a matter of minutes, uh, and it's got virtually you got to search for the flavor, or you have to add a little bit of the salt and pepper and uh, and other things in order to give it any flavor. Yeah, but see, we have become a culture over the last I don't know forty years that expects to get everything everywhere. The beauty of regional food, the beauty of looking forward to a trip to Memphis so that you can have those unique ribs at, at the rendezvous, which violate all the rules of barbecue, but which are extraordinary, uh, or of going to central Texas to go to Louis Miller's and Taylor and have astonishing brisket, or... Uh, to go, it's not a dish I love, but to go to Minnesota and have the local fish favorite there, which is walleye, which is a form of pike that is famous for having no flavor. But anyway, the point is, I, I live on the Jersey Shore in a tourist area where we bring in, um, the boats come in with fresh scallops that will knock you on your butt. And uh, a variety of different fish, including tuna in August. And you go into a restaurant here and and you see tourists uh, who are eating things that don't come from here. They're eating frozen fried shrimp from Vietnam. Well, if you want shrimp, go to Georgia. Or go to Louisiana, but don't eat them here when you could be having the greatest scallops on earth. It's just I, I don't get it. 
Right. That's that's like ordering mahi mahi in Maine. Yeah. Oh, but by the same token, you know, we're now convinced that you can get a lobster roll anywhere in America because they pack the lobster at big plants in Maine and Canada and they ship it out. I got news for you. As good as it is, it's nothing like eating lobster on a pier in Maine that literally just came out of the water. It's different. Yeah. It's or, or you went you went over to the tank and you said, uh, I'll take that one. Yeah, I'll take one. the guy here who's been languishing and then, in, and in then you this sit, sit a while over a few glasses of wine yeah. while they pair it to your liking. Yeah, no, I, I, I am a huge fan wherever I go of saying to locals, what do you eat here? What what's local? What wouldn't I think to eat here? Um and sometimes it's things you do think of. We were in Charleston not that long ago where the fried oysters are astonishing, just astonishing. Um, more because of the way they've perfected the batter and, and the frying than the oysters, which are fine in Charleston, but nowhere near as good as the oysters I get up here, um, where some of the best oyster farming in the world takes place. Uh, I'm not a fan of oysters in New Orleans. I love those oysters barbecued or grilled. But um, if you want oysters with real briny flavor, you've got to go to northern waters on either coast. That's right. Yeah. So let's let's just kind of switch gears here because we we I think we both have a fascination from sitting down and getting a nice, freshly prepared meal, but what is America's fascination with fast food? Well, a, a number of things. Number one, over the last half century, uh, actually more than that, starting in the 50s with the proliferation of convenience foods, um, we have become addicted to salt, sugar, and fat. And those things taste good. And more importantly, we've raised a couple of generations of kids turned into adults whose palates were formed by that. But it goes much deeper. The fact is, our love of fast food was born of a time of great national optimism among white Americans, white Americans, after the Second World War. Um, minority Americans did not really get to participate in this national festival of happiness where the GI Bill would send you to college and prices, uh, housing costs be, became acceptable. The, the VI, uh, VA loan would get you a house. And Eisenhower started building highways and uh, it all seemed futuristic and wonderful, and we started moving to the suburbs. Moving to the suburbs meant uh, more use of your car, more use of your car meant, hey, what if a restaurant let me drive through it? It all began there, and it's, it's just grown since then. We're now, you know, we're such a seemingly rushed culture. Everything's got to be done fast. Got to do this. Got to do that. Um, we're, we're, a t and, you know, exacerbated by the, uh, uh, 
pandemic, we're very much a takeout society at this point. I just got a from an analyst an incredible number. 82% of the meals sold by restaurants in America are consumed off premises. That means delivered, driven through and picked up, curbside picked up, or third party delivered. It's it's astonishing. This this guy was telling me, you know, it's not unusual in his view for a busy working mom to pick up her kids and drive them through three different fast food restaurants to get home and put their choices for dinner on the table and unwrap them. Um, we're that's that's us these days. Well, and, and it's also fair to say that going back uh, five or ten years or so, that was true. Then it got accelerated when COVID hit, because when well, the yeah, restaurants COVID, closed their doors, dining yeah, in. And what's interesting is there were predictions during COVID that uh, the dine-in restaurant was now dead. It's not dead. It's come back. People desire sociability and they desire social experiences. But the level of drive-through, takeaway, and delivery is substantially up from pre-COVID. And it's assumed it's going to stay there. And, and is it fair to say that a lot of those foods that we are consuming today are certainly not as healthy as what they what they were years ago? Well, it depends. I mean, you got to go way back. This all started to change in the 40s and 50s when processed foods became an industry and a highly profitable one. You know... Right, why, right. why Why is condensed soup condensed? Because to get housewives to use these new convenience products without feeling guilty, the manufacturers realized they had to leave a step for them to do. That's why pancake batter requires an egg. They can make it without needing an egg. But if you crack an egg into it, then you think you're cooking. So we started down this path quite a while ago. And, and I would argue that it wasn't till, I guess, the 70s that the concept of going to a restaurant specifically to eat better food, you know, the, the farm to table thing that was started by the, um, the French Laundry, uh, that was sort of a, when it started, it was kind of a hippie thing. And now, increasingly, there is um, a subset of society that, that sees value in that. Um, the fact is, it, it, it's, it's hard to do because once you're used to strawberries all year round, even though the only good ones are during peak season and where they're really grown, you're still going to buy strawberries all year round. I mean, tomatoes are now bred to be geometrically perfect, to be round so they can fit in the plastic containers in which they are shipped and sold. I live in New Jersey. Jersey tomatoes in August are A, the best tomatoes I've ever had outside of Italy, and B, uglier than sin because things that grow in nature don't grow for appearance. Um, but damn, they're good. 
You, the, the I want to talk a little bit. We 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 talked a bit at the very beginning of the show. We mentioned the diners, uh, drive-ins, and dives, and you you said that it was kind of uh, somebody said come up with an idea, and you threw it out, and all of a sudden they said I like it, develop it. You know, what was the beginning process for for diners, dive-ins, and drives, and then how did you develop it into this this really a mass following on the food network? Um, by doing a good show with a good host. Uh, I mean, that sounds, uh, sort of glib, but every TV show makes a promise to its viewers. Very few of them pay it off. What I promised in the concept of this show is you're going to have a really good time hanging out with someone you like, meeting cool people you like, and seeing and virtually tasting nifty food that in many cases will remind you of your mother. Now, I was painfully obsessive about keeping the bar at a certain level. And uh, to get on that show was very, very difficult. You had to really make things from scratch. You had to really make things well. And in all candor, you, you had to be willing to allow us to do what we do, which is to make our choices and drive the show. I remember uh, three guys who own a terrific, or owned, I don't know if they still do, a terrific biscuit joint in Portland. They were North Carolinians, so they had the lineage. And I was very interested in doing their place, but the producer working on it came to me and said, I know that these are the dishes we want to do, and this is what we want to do there, but they're really fighting me. They want to do another thing. They want to do that. I said, okay, um, it's their restaurant. So I called them up and said, listen, no harm, no foul. But for us to do this right, you have to, without in any way sacrificing the integrity of your food or being forced to do something untrue, you have to let us choose what we're going to cook and in what order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So tell you what, let's just part friends. This isn't going to work, but thank you for considering us. And all of a sudden, and I didn't do this to manipulate them. I just don't need the crap in my life. And all of a sudden, the entire attitude changed. No, of course, we want to be on the show. Tell us what you want to do. Okay, in that case, it worked. In other cases, if people were difficult, it wasn't going to work. We didn't do it. And on occasion... Despite all of the editorial vetting you can do from afar, there were, I'd say in 5% of the bookings, after the crew and guy got there, guy called and said, got a problem with this. And I said, okay, make polite uh, goodbyes and leave. And the network didn't know that I was doing this because I was eating the money um, that had been budgeted for those shoots. I still had to replace them. But I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to do what reality TV usually does, which is BS people. I insisted, and again, I left the show after season 11. I don't know what they do now. But I insisted on including every single step of the making of every single recipe in case you were in the 3% of viewers who wanted more than entertainment and white noise, but actually wanted to make that dish. Um, I was extremely um, 
narrow in what got through the gates to to make that show and that's what it took well folks for those of you that are watching and listening and everything it's it's a it's a fascinating career that david has had and he has documented a lot of it in a book called food americana and you also alluded that to you're working on another book about food standing up which i think is is going to be a fascinating book too but you can go to Amazon and find Food Americana. I, I, I encourage you to check it out because it gives you a perspective of what food is and what food can be. Uh, I've always said, like we, you said earlier, when you get into a town, uh, you go to the locals and you say, Where, where's a good place to eat? I take it a step further and I say a good local restaurant, you know, that's run by you know the, the the people that are actually there doing the setups and the cooking and and serving uh and i, th I think you would agree that's the, that's the best way to go when you're traveling oh yeah look before i go to any town i go online i pull up the local newspaper and magazine i read the food section i get a sense of it but the best suggestions generally come from cab and uber drivers uh, I said, oh, okay. if you were, if you, if you were going out for a terrific, not special event, but just a terrific everyday local meal, where would you go? And, uh, that works very well. Yeah. And, and, and it's usually, you know, uh, pops bar and grill or something or, or Maggie's cafe. Uh, and, and I've always, I've been a big fan of route 66 and there are still some great old diners, uh, along Route 66, yeah, but they're, they're falling off. They're they're well, just, that's true, that's true, especially I, I, from Oklahoma City to to Santa Monica Pier. Yeah, I got I got to tell you, my my wife and I were driving from Tucson. Was it Tucson? Yeah. Anyway, uh, 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 to to Las Vegas, and we decided to do a hunk of it on 66 in the right. presumption that there would be all sorts of kitsch, and we yeah. were tragically disappointed. Yeah, no, there wasn't much there. Yeah, the, the extent of it is uh, it'll say one mile ahead, uh, Route 66, historical marker. Yeah. <laughs> what, what used to be there. But if you go back the other way through Joplin, Missouri, and Springfield, uh, yeah. Illinois, on your way to Chicago, there are still some great little places. Yes, you are, you it, are it, correct. It's fascinating. What, David, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to keep you all day, uh, although I would would like to. But what what do you see as as the future of not only home cooked places but also fast food? What 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 does it look like down the road for us? Well, architecturally, the fast food joints are now literally modifying some of their designs to enable multiple takeout lanes. Uh, some of them are actually um, doing away with interior seating. But you're seeing an interesting war that has erupted as the traditional QSRs, quick service restaurants, are now in a battle with convenience stores, which are increasingly um, making full meals uh, behind their counters. Um, in our neck of the woods, you got Wawa, you can get like a pot roast or chicken dinner with mashed potatoes. 
and yep. they are really um, worrying the traditional QSRs, which are trying to add more complicated dishes to the menu to compete with them. But on the other side of it, you've got something called the grocerant, more and more fully prepared meals cooked on site at grocery stores. When you go to uh, you go to Whole Foods between 4.30 and 6.30, nobody's buying ingredients. They're buying meals and taking them home. Um, I see all of that continuing to increase. I see technology and AI helping uh, fast food operators and uh, also some fast casual places um, to cut down on staff. Uh, which is a good or a bad thing, depending upon whether you have someone working in the restaurant industry. Although there's a real crisis in the restaurant industry with getting enough people to work these days. You've got a robot that'll sauce a pizza. Right. You've got AI that will literally predict what a former customer is uh, interested in and add that to his menu screen. You've got AI that the instant... A customer mentions pizza, um, the speech recognition software picks it up and starts a pizza before the order is even finished. Um, there, there's a lot that's going to be going on that's going to merge quick service and fast casual to some extent. There are pizza places now where you can get your pizza the same way you get something at Chipotle, which is to walk down the line, pick this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient. And then it's thrown into a highly sophisticated high-tech oven that cooks it like that. And your pizza's handed to you at the end of the line. Um, you're going to see a lot of that sort of stuff. You're also going to see restaurants, including quick service, playing more and more of a part in attracting you to shopping venues. Uh, it used to be that you'd go there to buy apparel and then you'd go to the ugh, food court to to fill up now um mall operators shopping center operators uh the owners of mixed use developments which include shopping um and housing often uh they've all come to the conclusion that food is the new apparel and that uh if you provide unique interesting local um, scratch made food to customers, you may bring them to your facility as more of a leisure activity on a day out. And while they're there, they'll do some shopping, but it's almost like man biting dog. Yeah. Amazing. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to just sit and chat about, about something that is, is of interest to everybody. But sometimes we just forget about that there is good food to be had out there and uh, and take the time to research it and also get a hold of Food Americana uh, and all and learn a little bit more about it. And then I'm also going to be looking forward to to when you launch the uh, the second book. But uh, right now, folks, pick up a copy of the first book and uh, digest it and then uh, pick out something that you like and have it delivered. <laughs> or better yet, get the ingredients and make it yourself at home. There's there's a recipe at the end of each chapter. There you go. See? 
you couldn't ask for more. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that'll do it for another it'll do it for another edition of someone you should know. I always end my show by saying be yourself because everyone else is taken. And I think David can can relate to that also. So go out and make it a good one. Come back and see us again next week. And thanks again to someone you should know, David Page. Thanks. Thanks, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Someone you should know.